From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The iconic Hanging Lake seemed at times to be barely hanging on. It was almost wiped out by fire. Then came flooding and mudslides. To have lost Hanging Lake, one of our top gems, that would have felt pretty bad. While it did hold on, access was cut off. But soon, more resilient trails and bridges will mean a return to Hanging Lake. That story kicks off an hour dedicated to the outdoors with the unofficial start of summer. Also, my hike with a Colorado TikToker known as Fat Black and Getting It. And what? One-star reviews of national parks? That was one of the biggest things that drew me into this project was just how someone could go to the exact same places that are these extremely fond memories for me and just be so incredibly underwhelmed. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Maybe you got to spend some time outside over Memorial Day weekend, the unofficial start of summer. Well, we're going to keep with that spirit on today's show, an hour dedicated to the outdoors. During the work week, when I feel cooped up, there's a leafy little spot a few paces away, which is where I'm sitting now in Denver's uptown neighborhood. But we're going to start about 150 miles west of here at Hanging Lake. The iconic spot managed to escape fire. Then came the floods and mudslides that swept through Glenwood Canyon last year, and it was cut off. The debris flow washed away bridges on the main trail. Hanging Lake's been closed off to the public ever since, but if the weather stays decent, it'll reopen sometime in June. CPR's Matt Bloom recently got a look at the tireless effort to finish repairs. I think it's like 75 and sunny today. This is great. Leanne Valdheis and I are standing at the start of a 1.2-mile trail leading up to Hanging Lake. Nearby, we can hear the sounds of cars whizzing by on I-70 and water rushing through a creek that winds along the trail. At at the bottom, the creek is cranking today. Definitely spring runoff um, and surge in water levels is definitely happening. It was less than a year ago that rainstorms in this area triggered massive mudslides in the nearby Grizzly Creek burn scar. The runoff carried boulders, sticks, and dirt from the scar down this canyon, smashing through Hanging Lake's trail infrastructure like a wrecking ball. Valheis, a district ranger with the Forest Service, says the damage was shocking. Just the, the power of all the rock and water coming down knocked the the smaller trail bridges right off. Five bridges in total were damaged, along with slabs used as stepping stones up the steep incline. There's still a picnic table area next to us at the trailhead that's partially covered by debris. Just a lot of the dirt and debris that filled all of these in. Uh, Looks like they've done a great job of, of removing a lot of that. Miraculously, the lake itself has survived unscathed. It's beloved by locals and tourists alike for its waterfalls and unique geologic makeup. 
formed by a fault that caused the lake bed to drop away from the Alpine Valley floor high above it. Valdheis says it's a miracle it's still around. To have lost Hanging Lake, basically one of our top, you know, gems on the district, that would have felt pretty bad. The repair effort has been one of the Forest Service's fastest projects on the books. A fund set up in the wake of the damage raised several million dollars, partly from hikers who donated their canceled reservation fees to repairs. The city of Glenwood Springs also chipped in. Forest officials say it's been enough to get a new, more basic trail set up in time to open this summer. It immediately gets steep, you know, the trail. We're we're heading up now. Valdeheis and I make our way up the rocky, shaded trail to a bridge where workers are rebuilding using pressure-treated wood and reinforced steel. It takes a lot of patience and expertise to build infrastructure like this, says crew member Joe Murphy. The idea is that it's very heavily weighted to the abutments to help stay firm and really solid from water flooding like it did on the old bridge. Murphy flew in from out of state to take this job. He says he'd never been here before, but now understands why people love this place so much. I think it's really special because the trail's closed and we get to camp out here and just be fully immersed in this environment. Um, and it's, it's so beautiful. You get great shade up here for the first half of the day. Repairs are expected to take a few more weeks before the trail is completely safe for the public to use. District Ranger Leanne Valdheis says they aren't letting anyone back up to the lake itself until then to keep repairs moving as quickly as possible. Just hoping for uh, not a a poorly timed rain event (laughs) from Mother Nature, but, you know, we'll we'll cross that bridge. I'm full of puns today. We'll, We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. It'll be a healing step for the community once it's ready, she says. I, I think it'll be more exciting uh, and, and also probably a, a huge sigh of relief uh, as well. I mean, I think I think the email traffic to even just the city of Glenwood Springs websites, you know, it's like 80% like, can, can I go to Hanging Lake and, and stuff like that. And so uh, I, I'm really excited about getting this reopened just for the immediate community benefit uh, and draw that's that'll be brought back to this area. The Lake Trail's current estimated reopening date is June 25th. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News, Glenwood Canyon. And a reminder that reservations are still required to visit Hanging Lake. You can book those on the City of Glenwood Springs website. Hiking Colorado's mountains wasn't really on Nelson Holland's bucket list. That is, until he decided to leave New York and come west. And his message, that the outdoors are for everyone, no matter your size or race or means, well, it resonates with his growing number of followers on TikTok. Nature, for Holland, is medicine. Stop scrolling and let's go check out some nature. Two flat tires in three weeks really can't catch a break. Luckily, they hooked it up for me. Still had to get my boots from REI. If ever there was a day for a mental health hike. It's crazy how just half an hour in the trees can just change your whole perspective. Earlier this spring, we asked Nelson Holland, who lives in Aurora, to hike with us and to share his journey. He has just launched a sort of guide service for people who want to be outdoorsier, but are reluctant to get started. Nelson, what's the name of your TikTok? Uh, Fat, Black, and Getting It. Fat? Black and getting it. Unpack those three concepts for me. Well, all my life I've been basically over 300 pounds, it feels like. Um, 
I'm definitely black. I uh, identify as black and look that way. Everybody treats me that way. And uh, I really just want to represent for all the people that look like me to get out and hike. Because I never see people that look like me on trail. You never see that? Almost never. And when I do, you know, it's literally one out of 20, 50, 100. I mean, I almost never see anybody my size hiking on trail. But I also rarely see any black indigenous people of color out in these spaces either. The third part of your TikTok, getting it. What does getting it mean to you? I guess this is more personal. I never thought that I could do some of these things that I was doing. Um, Yeah, like I never thought that I would be able to hike a 14er at over 300 pounds. But um, I took this journey kind of one step at a time, just walking around lakes. And before I knew it, I was hiking up mountains. And yeah, before I knew it, I pushed that even further. So just want to show people that fat people can be out here getting it too. We're at Mount Falcon in Jefferson County. Why'd you choose this place for us to meet? Uh, it's, not a, it's not a hard one. This is like kind of a nice stroll with a beautiful view. And I often tell people from out of town that this is one of the first parks that they should acclimate at. Yeah, it's close to the metro. Easy drive. When you say that you don't see a lot of people your size or your color, what do you think that's about? Um, I think it's about a few things, but one of the uh, most potent reasons, I think, is just because they don't see people that look like them out there. Um, I know personally, I live in Aurora now, and a lot of my friends from Aurora, they're afraid of deer because they've never had a family member fish or camp or be in these spaces. Um, Historically, black people were excluded from spaces much like these. Um, And as for fat people, I mean, every time you see somebody hiking a 14er, it's, you know, somebody that weighs 180 pounds and it's got Patagonia on and all the gear. And there's just nobody really representing for all the other people out there that also enjoy nature. So it's in a way, it's a numbers game. Like you've got to see enough of the folks who look like you to feel comfortable. And until you do, it just doesn't feel like your space. Do you think that's it? Um, yes and no. I feel like that's the case for most people. But for me, I I really just coming from New York, I had never seen anything as beautiful as this. And I just felt like I had to explore these spaces, whether they accepted me or not. You know, I know we're not back in in the 40s and I'm allowed to go to these places. So I gave it a try and I found out in a lot of cases, the places are friendly and uh, it's just been like a a life-changing experience for me. So now I feel like I need to share it with the world. What transformations have you noticed in your mind and your body as you've gotten into the mountains more? Um, Body, definitely. The the weight loss was not something that I expected, but it it came. Like I said, I was really just out here kind of for the the views and the journey. And then, yeah, my mental health got so much better and I got so much more stable and stronger. Um, I think... Part of that is just relaxing in nature, and also part of that is overcoming some of the challenges that I wasn't sure I could do. Mm. Do you feel like 
you're a little addicted to nature now? Like, once you get a hit of it like this, is it something you want more of? Uh, 250%. I, I recently realized that I'm definitely addicted to nature. Um, I, I'd say it's just about the cleanest addiction you can have. But yeah, when I don't go out for a couple days even, call it three days, I, I start getting antsy and my mental state gets a little worse. And yeah, I just feel like taking these hikes always puts me at my best. Okay, a little earlier, you mentioned folks walking around in Patagonia. My first thought was, oh my God, Patagonia is so expensive. And it did make me think about what the economic barriers are, not just the social barriers, but the economic barriers, the gas that it took for you to drive out here. You know, do you think those things keep a more diverse crowd from coming into the great outdoors? I do. I definitely do, and gas is really bad right now, but from my perspective, I always wonder why more minorities don't come to these spaces, because other than gas, a lot of them are free. So, I mean, when I bring people from New York here, I'll often come here because it only costs me gas. They're going to see some beautiful views, maybe some wildlife. An awesome sunrise or sunset. We can bring some food out here. Um, so yes, transportation is another thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of people live very far away from these places. But there are places you can take the bus to. Um, so yeah, I like to kind of show the side of uh, hiking where it's very inexpensive and anybody can do it. You said you bring your New York friends out. What are their experiences? Did, oh. you, say, did you say you thought someone was afraid of deer? I, I know for a fact that people are afraid of deer. It's uh, That one's funny to me, but... I mean, they're bigger than us. Eh, maybe not me, but <laughs> some of them. <laughs> Elk, definitely, and moose and all that. Yeah. But, yeah, no, just if, if you've never been from here, then if you've never seen anything like that, and you've seen some of the YouTube videos where somebody gets kicked by deer, yeah, I guess that's... You consider it as a threat. But, um, for example... I brought my dad to Waterton Canyon one day, and mm. uh, Waterton Canyon is south of Denver. Yeah, by uh, Littleton. Yeah. And uh, there's a bunch of bighorn sheep there. We got about 20 feet away from these bighorn sheep because they crossed right next to us while we were looking in a different area. And as soon as they finished crossing the river, my dad looked at me and he goes, "I finally get why you moved here." Had he been perplexed until then? Yeah. Um, my black friend specifically. Oh, we're at a crossroads. Where, which, left or right, Nelson? Uh, we got some options depending on how long you want to go. That's my favorite view that nobody knows about. Okay, up on that kind of rock mound? Yeah, we have to get up there for the pictures at least. But there's like kind of a, a nice walk to a shelter. No, let's get up to your favorite spot. Okay, if you if you guys are sure you're ready for it. I brought hiking boots. So did our audio engineer, Tyler Bender. Okay, so your dad had what, struggled with your move before then? Um, I think they just didn't understand why I would move across country. You know, I told them my reasons, but they, I think everybody thought that, you know, I would be here for a year and then go somewhere else or move back. But eight years later, I'm still here, and I think that's what they didn't understand. You can see it in pictures, but when it happens to you, it's different. 
We used to watch action movies, me and my dad. That's one of our things. And the way I describe wildlife is it's like the coolest, realest action movie you could ever see. You mentioned that people have been kind to you on the trails. What are things you notice? Um, so actually, and I guess we'll stop just for a second because I'm not great talking uphill. Okay. This is a little bad, but, um, so actually I have met some really cool people on trail that have showed me some really cool spots that I didn't know about and um, pushed me to go further when I wasn't sure if I could do it. But in actuality, my on-trail experience is um, not as welcoming as I would like it to be. Often I don't get the friendly wave that everybody gets. And sometimes when I hike past older people further out west, um, they give me like really dirty looks. Um, makes me feel a little uncomfortable. But this online hiking community that I found with people that I can obviously then meet, they've been like crazy supportive. And actually what's kind of pushed me to do this because I realize there's a lot of other people that are like me and feel like me. Is that a safety in numbers kind of thing for you, do you think? Like I said, for me, I have this ability just to like run into my fear. So um, I'll go out there whether it's just me or whether it's a group. But yeah, I definitely feel a lot more comfortable sometimes when I have other people with me. And it's not necessarily always people that look like me. The hiking group that I'm in is um, a lot of white women, but... Yeah, even just being with them on trail makes me feel more comfortable. I know they feel the same way, but it's funny. Yeah, like having a bunch of mm. white women while I'm out in the wilderness does feel comforting. When you see people who give you stink eye, do you try to get into their minds and think, what was behind that, you know, unpleasant glance? I think most people that deal with issues like that would caution you to not try and get in that person's mind. I just assume that they're kind of from a, a different time and a different place in a different area than me. And, you know, there's just got to be more shared experiences before we can see eye to eye. But hopefully me doing this is something that helps break down those barriers. What has been your most watched TikTok? You were, you have a lot of followers. I have, a, I have a decent amount. Uh-huh. Do you remember what the latest number was? I think I might have put it in my... Hold on. Bring out my notes. Out of my fanny pack. Okay. <laughs> I like that. I think your last number, 87,000, Nelson. It sounds about right. Most liked video so far? Most liked, most liked. You know, I don't readily remember this. I know um, the Manitou Incline was something that kind of uh, got people to even notice me hiking up that. But I actually don't think that's my most liked video. Um, I like that you don't know what is. <laughs> I, I don't know. It kind of tells me your heart's in the right place. Like, you're on social media, but you don't sound obsessed with, like, the metrics of it. Yeah, no, I, I'm not going to lie. There was a time where I kind of did look at analytics and metrics a little more than I do now. But really, it's it's completely about the journey and the views for me. And I remember more of the hikes that I do than the views I get from the hike. I will say... When I go to a super beautiful place and I don't get a lot of views, I'm kind of like, oh, I wish I would have showed that to more people. Oh, because you want to share this. Yeah, it's. I just went to Buena Vista and a lot of people did kind of see that video. But yeah, like it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. So I, I just want to share that with the world. On the Arkansas River. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. I know. Yeah. yeah, I love going up there. I guess in the pandemic too, eh? The outdoors become 
more important. Have you found that? Um, definitely for my following. For me, it's always been important. But yeah, everybody that's kind of came and found me, they found me because they were looking for something to do in the pandemic. Favorite comments or feedback you've gotten from followers? First, I get comments sometimes with people that are like stuck in the hospital and literally can't get outside. And they say that like, I'm there outside. They're living vicariously through you. Yeah. And that just like, you can see me right now kind of choke up. Yeah. Um, that, that feels like something special. Also, I get comments where I literally inspire people to go do any trail or sometimes a trail that I just did. Um, lately, I've been more focused on accessibility. So I'll try to show trails in real time that people can go on with wheelchairs or whatever issue they might have. Um, so, yeah, that that really makes me feel special. Because these folks tell you that they go on those trails afterwards. Right. And sometimes will even tag me in the video and it lights me up with joy. And recently... I won't give her name because I'm sure she won't want to be shouted out, but I was just on trail with a follower, now turned friend, that's in the hiking group. We did a hike in uh, Boulder Flatirons up to the uh, first Flatiron, the first and second Flatiron Trail. She's a beginner hiker, and she had no idea that she could do something like that. Um, I walked with her all the way, and we got it done, and I'll be thinking about that for probably the next few months. Okay, after a break, we'll resume our hike with Nelson Holland at Mount Falcon Park near Morrison. Holland's TikTok, Fat, Black, and Gettin' It, encourages people of all colors and sizes to get into nature. Holland lives in Aurora, and he'll tell us about a revelation he had while his father was visiting from New York. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Title IX is not just about money and whose shoes are nicer. Erica Krauss is the Colorado PI who helped the nation see Title IX as about much more than sports. And her new memoir, Tell Me Everything, is a riveting look into a landmark sexual assault investigation here in Colorado. It's also our next read for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Join the conversation live on stage to kick off Lit Fest in Denver, June 10th. Details and free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. To mark the unofficial start of summer, we are spending today's show in Colorado's great outdoors and sharing the story now of a mind and body transformed. Nelson Holland of Aurora changed his life when he started hiking. He recently went skiing for the first time, and he shares his passion for the outdoors on social media, namely TikTok, where he goes by Fat, Black, and Getting It. Holland and I went for a hike earlier this spring at Mount Falcon Park in Jefferson County. We trudged up a hill and, out of breath, took in the vista. Okay, that was a climb. <laughs> Tell me what you are seeing and feeling. <sighs> Tired. Out of breath. Whew. But you can see Chatfield down there. You can see the entire Denver metro area, all the way down to Cherry Creek and DTC in the distance down there. Um, you can see Red Rocks, the back of Red Rocks over there. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's uh, Castle Ruins right there. You can hike to that from here. 
so yeah, those are most of the front range views that I look at. But then you come back here, then you got uh, Mount Evans. And I'm not great with those mountain peaks. Did you know what a 14er was before you moved here? I didn't. Uh, yeah, no, I, no idea. Like I said, I didn't even know. I knew, you know, Mount Everest. Um, and I knew there were Rocky Mountains. But I didn't know you could, like, hike them and what they meant. And I didn't know Mount Evans was the closest one in Denver. I didn't know any of that stuff. When you went hiking with your dad, did you guys talk about your childhood at all? Like, nature, getting out, being in the city versus not. Did that ever come up? It did. Uh, me and my dad are, like, best friends, so we talk about everything all the time. But, yeah, he actually reminded me that I was in... Uh, Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. I didn't go too far with it, so I kind of tend to forget about it. But yeah, this seed was planted um, years ago. It's something that I got away from and forgot about. And yeah, Colorado exposed it in crazy ways. Well, social media is not the only way you want to spread the word about the outdoors and that they belong to everyone. Tell me about this company you've formed. So I just started my LLC, Getting It. Um, we're going to be doing guided hikes with Getting It. So if you're unfamiliar with the outdoors, or if you're a bigger person, if you're a minority that doesn't have any experience, come find me, hit me up on my social medias, and let's talk about getting you outdoors and showing you some of these views and these hikes that uh, I love so much. Nelson, the nice thing about coming uphill is that when you go back, it's downhill. Oh God, it's the best part. Did I get it? Get what? You know, getting it. Did I get it? Oh, I'd say so. Okay, good. Look at this view. Do you feel like you got it? I got it. He got it. Ryan got it. Nelson Holland of Aurora, a.k.a. Fat Black and Getting It on TikTok. We spoke earlier this spring. If you're looking to hike in Colorado but don't have easy access to a car or don't want to navigate crowded parking lots... There are some new options this summer to get you to a trailhead. CPR's Nathaniel Miner breaks it down at CPR.org. When we come back, we flip things around. Are Colorado's outdoors becoming a victim of their own popularity? The way people enjoy this state may be changing. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Once upon a time, Loveland was the heart of Colorado's thriving cherry industry. That began in the late 1800s, and by the 1900s, there were 10,000 acres planted in Montmorency and Morello sour cherries. Those orchards raked in millions in early 20th century dollars and gave jobs to nearly every local family. Cherry stands and canning factories popped up around town. In 1930, Loveland had its first cherry blossom festival. Mrs. A.V. Benson invented cherry cider about the same time, and soon the federal government was requisitioning Colorado cherries to feed the troops. But after a hard freeze in 1954 damaged and killed many trees, orchards were neglected. Cheaper fruit started coming in from out of state, and Colorado's cherry industry faded. But Loveland continues to celebrate this sweet chapter of its history every summer with a cherry pie festival. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Sheets and Giggles. The way we enjoy the outdoors may be changing, especially at Colorado's most beloved natural wonders. 
As more people clamor to visit these places, more restrictions are being put into place to manage crowds and protect ecosystems. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg finds it's been a bumpy ride. A clear stream flows into the blue-green depths of a stunning lake, surrounded by bald aspens and a carpet of evergreens. Above it all, two gigantic, jagged peaks come to fine points, covered in slabs of stubborn snow. Welcome to the Maroon Bells, just outside of Aspen, the most photographed place in all of Colorado. Well, look around, you see why people love it. That's why they come. The claim is they're loving it to death. Mike and Margaret Simmons are two of the many people who want to change that to protect this place they love so much. The basalt couple volunteer here with the Forest Conservancy, connecting with visitors and walking the trails, basically being extra eyes and ears for park rangers. Things here now are so much different than when the couple first visited in the mid-1960s. You could just drive up here and park and go hiking. And camp if you wanted. There, was no. No, there were no regulations about that. But Margaret says in the decades since... Everybody discovered it, and they, they all want to come, and uh, they do. More than 300,000 of them every year, double what it was just a few years ago. That's why in 2020, the Maroon Bells became one of the growing number of public land gems to institute a reservation system, capping the number each day of people who drive in or take the shuttle. A Carbondale resident, Nora Serafine, says snagging one of these reservations was hard. And uh, I try and try and try all day, and finally I do. The reservation was not for her, but for her daughter, Hexiri, just about to get her photo taken for her quinceanera, her 15th birthday. She's in a shoulderless red dress covered in sparkles and embroidered flowers. It's huge. It's big. It's like a whole circle around me. It's like Social distancing. <laughs> Both she and her mom were worried that because of this new reservation system, this photo shoot in this beautiful place with this beautiful dress on might not be possible. I'm feeling so glad. I'm feeling so happy because this is a place I dreamed about years ago for this moment. I meet another local woman who tells me she's made 40 reservations for the season. And then there's plenty of others who decided to buck the system entirely and bike in, which does not require a reservation yet. Even though today looks fairly empty, the computer system that holds these reservations says otherwise, and rangers turn away car after car without a reservation. That happened to Lena O'Connell's family. So they parked outside the gate and walked in. I was literally counting steps that, okay, we have done 6,000 steps, we have done 6,100. More than four miles in total, uphill, just to get in. Though I was able to give her a ride for the last little bit. O'Connell, on vacation from Atlanta, worries the reservation system is just too difficult for visitors passing through. Since it's new and there are a lot of people who want to come in, I think um, it could be disappointing a lot of people. For Scott Fitzwilliams, supervisor of the vast White River National Forest, stories like O'Connell's are tough to hear. It's going to be hard for that to, person to leave with that great of an experience, and that's not what we're after. 
Instead, he's trying to balance access with conservation in the most visited national forest in the country. It attracts more than 14 million visitors each year. You know, for perspective, that's more than Yellowstone, Yosemite, and Grand Canyon combined. The forest also issues permits or has reservation systems for other popular spots, including Hanging Lake near Glenwood Springs and Vail Pass Recreation Area. But Fitzwilliam says they're still learning how to best implement these restrictions. He hopes money from the federal Great American Outdoors Act will help. It earmarks billions of dollars for projects on public land. I see a day not far off where people will be able to see what how many parking spots are available? What are the crowds like? Can I get in there real time? I don't think that's getting to Mars type of thinking. I think that's right around the corner. But for now, many of Colorado's most visited natural places are going through growing pains as the public and land managers get used to the new restrictions. There's this delicate balance to be struck. The future of these lands also depends on people experiencing them and telling others raising awareness that we need to protect them. Several hours west of the Maroon Bells, a dirt bike rumbles through a wide-open swath of rolling desert hills known as Rabbit Valley. Just a few miles from the Utah border, it's wildly popular with off-roaders and RVers. And for years, they could just show up and park wherever. But now, they have to camp in designated spots and fill out a form for a permit fees are coming next year. It is for the best. Zach Kelly giving me a tour in his work truck is an outdoor recreation planner with the Bureau of Land Management, which oversees this land. He used to camp here as a high schooler, and so he gets that some people will see these changes as a bummer. But also having a background in uh, natural resources and caring about the multitude of resources here, it's kind of the the best compromise we can make. The visitors I talk to generally agree. Carrie Prosek, on a car camping trip from Arizona, says she was happy to see the designated camping sites so she can feel confident she isn't hurting the land. Maybe there's an owl nesting site or, you know, there's some really fragile vegetation and you know that you're not impacting it because you're camping where they're telling you you can camp. She had her pick of sites, all with new picnic tables and fire rings. But by the time Ohio resident George Brandt rolled in with his RV, all the quaint, tucked-away spots were taken. So now he's parked in a large, graveled group site, surrounded by other RVs. This out here is so wide open, it'd be nice if he could use more of it for camping. He also understands, though. Brandt says without some kind of control, these special places will get trashed. It's a beautiful country. There's only one United States of America. We need to take care of it properly. What that looks like for public land across Colorado and beyond is still very much in process. In Rabbit Valley, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. One way to get off the beaten path is to take a byway instead of a highway. I explored one of the state's scenic byways in the Grand Valley on a windy day in 2019 with a guide. I'm Stuart Green, and I'm the author of Scenic Driving Colorado. Stuart, tell me where we are and what we are seeing. Well, we're right on the northern edge of the Grand Mesa on Skyway Point, which is a fabulous overlook 
uh, looking west across the desert towards where Grand Junction is. We're looking down on the Mesa Lakes, and we can hear the peeping frogs down in the valleys below, and this is what driving around Colorado is all about. The Grand Mesa has over 300 lakes on it. I call it the land of 300 lakes. I saw a sign that said, Moose country, essentially. Beware of moose. And I didn't realize that the Mesa was moose habitat. Well, moose, you know, which aren't native to Colorado, were introduced up by Rocky Mountain National Park, north of there. And they've kind of spread all over Colorado. And we're coming up the highway here from the low elevations. We go through prime moose country, the kind of places you'd see in New England where moose like to hang out, you know, where there's lots of willows and marshes, and that's their happy place. I think that if you hear the word mesa, you might picture a lot of those mesas, perhaps in Arizona, around the Grand Canyon, that are are pretty bare. They're just rock. This is such a different kind of mesa. First of all, uh, it's purported to be the world's biggest flat-top mountain. This is, you know, not at all like something you'd see in Utah or Arizona in the canyon country. Uh, It was originally deposited as big lava flows that were spread out flat in the bottom of a valley before everything eroded away around it. So that's why it's all flat and, you know, it's like 60 miles long. Stuart, it occurs to me that scenic byways are a good metaphor for life. They're, they're a way of getting off kind of the main drag, stopping and smelling the roses, slowing down a little bit, and seeing something you otherwise might fly by at 75 miles an hour. Yeah, I agree, Ryan. I mean, I was actually thinking about it this morning when I was driving up here. You know, so often we think of bucket list destinations or the place at the end of the road or the end of the trail. But when you're driving a scenic road like this or any kind of backcountry road, you know, it's about looking and seeing things as moment to moment and seeing it all unfold before you, before you might reach some scenic overlook. But the other places are just as important too and just as beautiful. I have driven to Grand Junction many times to visit my aunt who used to live in Clifton. And, you know, I didn't even think to get off at Debeck, head through Mesa, Colorado, and come on this scenic byway. What an entry into the Grand Valley. Yeah, definitely. You know, like you can drive out on the top of the Mesa to what they call Land's End, which is out at the far end of there, and you're standing right on the rim of the world, you feel like, and the whole Grand Valley spreads below you. It's a place I've been to a bunch of times, like at sunset, and you know, the stars are just coming out and the valley is just filled with twinkling lights from Grand Junction and Clifton and Palisade. And, you know, it's just one of those breathtaking moments. You know, you're at the edge of the world out there. Stuart Green is author of Scenic Driving Colorado. It features 30 drives around the state. And we continue our time outdoors with one-star Yelp reviews for national parks. Sort of unbelievable, but also hilarious. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hi, my name is Jacob, and I'm from Greeley, Colorado. I decided to donate because I commute from Greeley to Fort Collins every day for work. So the second that I get in the car, I turn on Colorado Public Radio, and I get to listen to whatever's on the news or whatever musical selections going on that day. It's a great way for, as a new Coloradan, to learn about the state, and it's also a great way to stay informed on what's going on out there. Members make the news reporting and music programming possible. Thank you. 
If you're thinking about a national park visit, the reviews are in, and the great sand dunes are just a big mountain of sand. Yes, there are one-star online reviews of national parks, which artist Amber Scher finds hilarious. So she started illustrating them in the style of travel posters. Her subpar parks project became a hit on Instagram, and she wrote a book. America's Most Extraordinary National Parks and Their Least Impressed Visitors. We spoke last July. And Amber, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Tell us about the first one-star review you saw. Um, Yeah, I was on Reddit and I was working on what my angle for a project illustrating the national parks would be. And I happened to see someone had like posted just a few one-star reviews. So I actually think the first one I saw was Yellowstone, save yourself some money, boil some water at home. (laughs) And um, that just prompted me to look on Yelp and Google and see what other reviews people had left for parks. No doubt a reference to Old Faithful. I imagine so. Um, Yeah, but there are, I think, over a thousand or 10,000 thermal features in Yellowstone. So it could be any one of those. Yeah. You know, that's what I love about this book is as much as um, it highlights these one-star reviews, it actually winds up teaching you a lot about each of these parks. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Why do you think that review struck you? I mean, the ones that that one, for example, and there are some that are also like that, that are just so like sassy and kind of ridiculous. Like you just can picture how angry you have to be that you're just like stewing over this experience you had. And then you come up with this zinger that you want to post online later. So I think that's why that one stood out to me in particular. And it's in such stark contrast to your own experience in national parks from childhood, really, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was one of the biggest things that drew me into this project was just how someone could go to the exact same places that are these extremely fond memories for me and just be so incredibly underwhelmed. Do you have a favorite park from a childhood visit? Like, I always think of of Bryce and Zion uh, having the wind knocked out of me when I went there. Is there a park that gives you that feeling? Yeah, for me, it's definitely the Grand Canyon. We did a cross-country road trip uh, when I was a kid and it just always stuck with me as this place that I was so curious about and interested in because if you've been there and really been in the park, you know that it's so much more than what you can see from the rim. So it just like sparked my curiosity immediately and it's always really stuck with me. Okay, let's contrast that with the one-star review of the Grand Canyon. Yes, the review that I used for (laughs) the book is um, a hole, a very, very, I think three berries, large hole. Um, And I mean, if you only walk up to the rim, I can, I guess I can understand how that's the impression. If you just kind of walk up, look at it and leave, you don't really get a whole lot out of it. No pun intended. But, (laughs) (laughs) But it is so much more than that. So that review is particularly funny to me. Now, you mentioned Reddit. I'm curious where else people leave one-star reviews. Yeah, all the reviews I find are always on Yelp, which I was surprised to learn that there are Yelp profiles for some national parks. So Yelp, TripAdvisor, and Google are kind of the main places that I'll find reviews. What I found on Reddit was just someone had screenshotted reviews from like Google or Yelp. Um, Got it. Yeah. 
Three other national parks in Colorado appear in the new book. So we mentioned the Great Sand Dunes, or just a big mountain of sand. Uh, the others are Black Canyon of the Gunnison, which is, quote, just not impressive. <laughs> Rocky Mountain National Park, super unimpressed. And Mesa Verde, not much to look at. Uh, that last one is especially hard to swallow, but... um. Why don't you describe your illustration for Black Canyon of the Gunnison? So for Black Canyon of the Gunnison, I focused on the sort of iconic view that you always see for that park, which is a view looking over the cliffside at Painted Wall, which has those beautiful striations of the different layers of rock that have been revealed over time. And I've never been there in person, but even just the pictures were so awe-inspiring. I mean, like nothing I've ever seen. I actually have a good friend who just did a road trip with her family and they went and she sent me a picture and was like, oh, just really not impressive. But I mean, they <laughs> obviously loved it a ton. And so, I mean, it's somewhere on my bucket list. So I kind of can't believe that people have been so unimpressed by it. It's funny because you've jumped to the end of my script. I was going to ask you in a parting question if there are national parks in the U.S. you haven't visited yet. And uh, so the answer is yes. And, and Black Canyon is one of them. Yeah, I've actually only been to, I think I've added it up and it's about a third of the, the 63 national parks, um, which people always ask. And to me, it's sort of funny because I don't need to have been to these places to know how ridiculous these reviews are. Uh-huh. And I just have a general appreciation for all of the different parks and the different geography in America. So it's just pretty wild to me that someone would think that about these places. I want to go back to this idea that the book teaches you a lot about uh, these places. The Great Sand Dunes National Park, for instance, is not just sand, even though that is in its name. You, you write about how diverse a landscape that is. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of the thing that a lot of people don't understand about many parks is there's so much more to them than even the iconic view that you're going to get. You know, they're often very large. There's a lot to explore. Um, Great Sand Dunes has, it's not just sand. There is actually a ton of plant life there. I know one of the big activities in the park is to like ride on, like sled on the dunes and whatnot. And you have to be careful when you're doing that to do it in areas where you're not going to damage some of the more fragile landscape and obviously there's just the backdrop of mountains behind the dunes uh, where all that sand kind of comes and washes down from. So there's really just a lot to see in some of these parks that go beyond what it's named for. You write that uh, the Great Sand Dunes are the tallest sand dunes in all of North America at 750 feet, and that the larger park includes wetlands, alpine lakes, tundra, spruce, pine forests, grasslands. And, of course, there are those NASA rover tests because it's so <laughs> otherworldly there. The cliff dwellings at Mesa Verde are well known. Uh, it's interesting. You write there are some 5,000 archaeological sites in the park. I think that's another one where people see the one set of cliff dwellings kind of nestled under that huge cliffside. And they think that's all there. And that's, I think, the biggest sort of collection altogether in one spot. But you know, there's a lot of hiking and places to see throughout the park. So it's not just something you just kind of walk up, look at one thing and leave. Why is the park called Mesa Verde, which translates as green table? Uh, it's because there just is so much greenery there. Um, I think a lot of people think in places like that with these stark cliffs that there's not going to be a lot of, you know, green space. 
but there are just tons of junipers and pinion trees. So it is much more green than you might think, um, thinking of like rocky cliff dwellings. You also write that it's the first park of its kind dedicated to man-made, human-made creations, not just natural wonders. That sets Mesa Verde apart. Have you ever been able to meet a reviewer whose feedback you illustrated, Amber Share? I have not. And I think the thing is that a lot of people probably don't even remember that they wrote these things. <laughs> because usually what I'm pulling is just one little sentence or phrase from the review. It's not the whole review. Oh. And so if you think of things you've said years ago and someone pulled one phrase out of it, you probably wouldn't remember that you said that. Yeah, so I think a lot of people don't know that it's them. <laughs> Do you think now that you've started subpar parks and it's taken off in a big way, are you going to be wary of any future reviews you see? Like um, there's this like famous gallon of milk on Amazon. Do you know about this? That people review no. and they do it poetically. Oh. <laughs> and it's just become this like storehouse for people's poetry about this very prosaic item. Anyway, do you think that people do this tongue in cheek in some ways? Oh, definitely. Um, they do. When I started the project, I was pretty careful to just try. I made an honest effort to make sure the reviews I pulled were seemingly legitimate. I'm sure a couple of more snarky, sarcastic ones made it in my artwork. But the key thing now, because it has inspired so many people to obviously leave fake bad reviews to try to like get on a poster, I only use reviews that are old enough that they predate the project. Huh. So that, they have a much higher likelihood of being authentic. You write in the introduction that this project, Subpar Parks, has grown beyond its original snarky premise into a wonderful community. What do you mean by that? I thought when I started it, like, oh, this will be kind of a funny, almost like meme type of thing that people might enjoy really quickly and move on with their day. But it's really turned into this huge community of people from around the entire world, really, who are constantly like sending me stories about their time in the parks and photos and coming together even in the comments section to just share their experiences in these places that also stand in stark contrast to the review. How did that feel in quarantine to have that connection? Yeah, I think that was one of the most beautiful parts of the project was, you know, and it was pure coincidental timing. I couldn't have planned it that way if I tried, but I think in its own way, it gave people a nice outlet to also laugh, first of all, at a time when the world was in really rough shape, but just come together when we all couldn't travel and reminisce and kind of love on some of our favorite places in the world. I understand that you've wanted to be an artist since you were little, but you didn't necessarily see a path towards a full-time gig. Has Subpar Parks allowed you to pursue art full-time? Yeah, it has. Um, so actually last March, I quit my job to work on subpar parks full time. This is pretty much all I do now. I do still do some other freelance work and things like that. But subpar parks is kind of the main thing now for me. So it's been pretty wild. Well, congratulations. Amber, thank you so much for being with us. I'll make sure to leave a review of this interview afterwards. <laughs> thank you. Amber Share created subpar parks. And that is Colorado Matters for today. Before we take a hike, here's our team. Tyler Bender. 
Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.